Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a big day, ladies and gentlemen. We've got Prime Minister's questions coming up at midday. We'll bring you that live, of course. Vladimir Zelensky is arriving in Downing Street in about 25 minutes' time. We'll bring you that live, of course, as well. Uh, He's coming here to meet Rishi Sunak. Uh, It's the first time uh, there's been an official visit from the President of Ukraine since Boris Johnson left office, of course. He'll also be addressing uh, the House of Commons a little bit later on. Uh, We'll be talking to many people about all of that coming up. We've got a whole host of really, really good guests. Kicking off with Emma Revel uh, from the Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, Dr. Rakiba San is going to bring us up to date uh, on the latest from that report about Prevent and the dangers, of course, of many of the people that we're now being told are coming to this country illegally uh, who may indeed uh, have terrorist connections. We heard about it yesterday. We'll be developing that story along the course of this morning as well. We'll be talking too about HS2. We'll also be talking about an interesting report that's come out that says... We don't find anything funny anymore. People just aren't laughing as much in Britain as they used to. Well, I'm going to be putting that challenge out to you today because what we like to do here, as well as uh, educating, as well as informing, as well as breaking news to you, uh, we also like, if we can, to entertain you and make you laugh. There's plenty of things to laugh about this morning. For example, Madonna's face for a start. Uh, There's also, of course, uh, HS2. Apparently, they're not going to run as many trains as they said they were going to run. So that's really funny. Also, John Cleese still thinks he's funny. Uh, Apparently, there's going to be a bidding war for a new series of Faulty Towers. Really? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think John Cleese is very funny anymore at all. I'm sorry to say that, uh, but I'm afraid that is the reality of life. We're also going to be laughing quite a lot about the Church of England. Uh, They're not apparently sure whether Jesus was, in fact, a man. Uh, They're wondering whether it might be a good idea uh, to explore the possibility that he could be gender neutral. Well, there are some people who don't even think he exists, so I'm not even sure they should be wasting anybody's time, should they? 0344 499 1000 is the number to talk to me on. Uh, You know the saga, you know the stories. We'll also be talking, of course, about a man uh, who's taking on the education establishment today. Uh, This is a guy who was fined for taking his children out of school to take them away on holiday somewhere. Uh, He's now decided he wants a bit of tit-for-tat action. Uh, He's going after them for going on strike. And who can blame him? Because, frankly speaking, you pay your taxes for your children to be educated. And if they don't get educated because the teachers have gone on strike then surely you're due a refund. I think he's got a point. 0344 499 1000. So here's a challenge for you today. Uh, you can text us on 810, eight, sorry, on uh, 
87222. I don't know where that came from. Well, I do know where it came from, but uh, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, you can also tweet us, of course, at IROMG, at Talk TV. Um, plenty of uh, messages are coming in already. Because what I want from you is the last time you actually laughed properly. And I said to Julie Hartley Brewer, one of the main reasons people don't laugh anymore is the Ramonas. The Ramonas have made people so miserable that you're not supposed to take anything funny anymore. You're supposed to take everything seriously. Everything. Absolutely. I mean, I was talking about that Delilah song last weekend, um, and I suggested that uh, the Welsh rugby team hadn't played terribly well. Somebody actually accused me of being anti-Welsh. I said, well, no, they got slaughtered by Ireland. That was the only death that went on with the singing of Delilah. I'm not anti-Welsh. I'm actually very pro-Welsh, but the team were absolute rubbish. Simple as that. 0344 499 1000. Also, here's something good for a laugh. MPs apparently say uh, that when they leave office, they should get even more money than they already get. Plus, they should get a medal. <laughs> of course they should. Oh yeah, also, something else to make you laugh. They've locked up some bloke from Insulate Britain for contempt of court. Brilliant. Fantastic. Uh, that's made me laugh, certainly, this morning. Anyway, uh, let's get it on. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. It's Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. It's a glorious sunny day. There's a bit more of a fog on the river this morning, but it seems to have lifted even quicker than it did yesterday. There's still a little bit of residue uh, knocking about over HMS Belfast. But otherwise, uh, it looks glorious out there. Uh, Emma Revel is with us, Head of Communications at the Centre for Policy Studies. Just a bit of breaking news, Emma, before we kick things off. Apparently a Supreme Court challenge to the Northern Ireland Protocol post-Brexit trading arrangements has been unanimously dismissed. Not quite sure what that means, but we'll find out. We'll find out from Peter Cardwell exactly what that means. But Emma, very good morning to you. Welcome to the Independent Republic. Morning, Graham. Morning, Mike. I don't know why I did that. I How don't know you? why I did that either. Well, I did keep you waiting quite a long time. I mean, you could have practiced my name a couple of times at least. But I anyway, know your name, Mike. I'm listen, so don't worry. Don't worry. It's given everybody a good laugh. And apparently that's what we need to do, because according to a story in The Times this morning, we're not laughing enough. I think we do take life too seriously, don't we? I see it was all part of my master plan, you see, that's that's what I was trying to do. <laughs> I think that I think that is true. And I think the news uh, is sort of over the last few years does tend to focus because it's what people are interested in, I suppose, on the on the negatives. And it is all a bit sad and relentless and we can probably do with a bit more cheering up. But like you said in your introduction, I also am not entirely convinced a remake of Faulty Towers is the way to go. I really don't think so. But we'll come back to that. Let's talk about uh, something which is happening as we speak. We're about to see uh, Vladimir Zelensky show up at Downing Street. Uh, we'll be covering that live right now as we speak. Um, around about 10.30. Um, obviously, Rishi Sunak's fed up with Boris Johnson nicking all the limelight uh, from uh, from him whenever he goes to Ukraine. And I think he wants to send the very clear message that, hey, listen, uh, I'm the guy that actually agrees to send you the tanks. I'm the guy that gives the money. So maybe you should be hanging about with me a bit more than that bloke Boris. You know, I think um, Zelensky wants to come and, and show his gratitude to, you know, what Britain has given, which I think we've been an incredibly important partner for Ukraine and we should be incredibly proud of that. But also to just reiterate his point to directly to parliamentarians, I think he's addressing um, both chambers of the House later today, just to sort of make it very clear what what his asks are. And, you know, unfortunately, Britain might not be able to fulfil them all. It's not necessarily within our remit to do so but we have been incredibly supportive and I think he's just wanting to to come and thank us for that and to make his asks to the Prime Minister directly. Yes I think so and I mean as far as the the public in this country are concerned you know there are some who think that we shouldn't be wasting any more money we shouldn't be taking um, our time to kind of keep supporting this fight because nobody knows how long it's going to go on for 
But it does seem from the military perspective that people think it is going to escalate quite quickly in the next few weeks and months. And, and it may well be that sometime this year there is a resolution to it all. Yeah, from my understanding, I think once, you know, the the harsh winter uh, begins to thaw and into spring weather, it, it becomes easier for troops to manoeuvre across the terrain. And then the, there is a concern that Russia will be looking to, to launch a spring offensive. But I don't think anyone expected Ukraine to hold out this long. And they're not just holding out. They're doing an incredible job um, of, of keeping, you know, the Russian invasion at bay. So I understand uh, in a time when finances are difficult, why people think well why are we spending money on mm. this war but i think this this invasion is something that does directly impact britain because of russia's you know oil and gas supplies and, and sanctions that we have rightly put on uh, exports from russia so this isn't just about ukraine obviously mm. You know, the territorial integrity of Ukraine is, is the primary factor in the safety of Ukrainian people. But this does affect the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Yeah, it does. And we'll come back to the cost of living in a moment. I've just got to read you this from Graham, which has cheered me up quite, quite dramatically. He says, to keep 40 towers modern, surely Basel would have to be running a hotel full of migrants that have crossed the channel. Brilliant. Now, that might be worth watching, actually, but we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, because cost of living wise, um, you know, the focus has been on Rishi Sunak now for the, per the first 100 days past last week. He had a little mini reshuffle yesterday. Um, there's a sense, I think, that Sunak is doing OK, but he's not really very inspiring. He's not terribly um, sort of, um, you know, I don't know, leader like he's, he doesn't inspire people to kind of look to him for great resolutions and solutions to things. And he's sort of like a manager. Um, what are you hearing from your people uh, in your world as far as how they think Rishi Sunak is doing and whether he can actually pull this whole thing out of the bag and win the next election? Well, he was dealt uh, a, a difficult hand. He became prime minister at a time of great sort of economic uncertainty. And he, I think for him and his chancellor the primary responsibility in the in the beginning was to steady the ship and i think they've they've done that incredibly well but then we can't forget that actually the bigger picture is to you know get britain back on a track of of growth not just sort of stopping uh, any any further uh, economic issues but actually beginning to improve matters and i think that is partly behind um, the reshuffle and, and the departmental changes yesterday, you know, having a, a business and trade department focusing on promoting investment in Britain, but also promoting British businesses overseas. That's something that, you know, the Conservative governments ha have been doing for a while now. But now we have a department solely focused on that. And I think that is a positive move. Yeah. And as far as uh, pointing Lee Anderson, I think that was quite inspired. It's the first decent thing I think Rishi Sunak's done. Uh, he's actually recognised that somebody like Lee Anderson, who is the scourge of left wingers, uh, actually does represent people who did vote for the Tory party for a reason. And that was to get out of the European Union uh, and to stop the migrant boats coming. I think one of the biggest challenges Rishi Sunak has got is is balancing different factions within the Conservative Party. And I think it's fair to say that Lee Anderson and Greg Hans, who became the chairman, come from different backgrounds within the Conservative yes. Party. Um, one is a, a you know a, a very effective London-based campaigner and has been for for many decades. Uh, the other you know is a, is a former Labour councillor, so you know incredibly different backgrounds. Um, but they are both parts of the Conservative vote in 2019 that need to be you know maintained if the Conservatives are going to have a chance of of winning the next election. 
Yeah, and do you think they have got a chance? I mean, because the, the big question for a lot of people is whether Labour can actually summon up any kind of policies that they can suggest that people might want them to follow on with, because at the moment we don't really have much in the way of policies from the Labour Party. Well, we have some, and also you've got to remember, Mike, we're still you know 18 months out from a from a likely general election date. That's still quite a lot of time for for both parties, well, all parties to to put manifestos together and and put together you know a firm policy offering. Um, but I think you know the way the polls are at the minute, it's certainly an uphill battle for for Rishi Sunak and his new party chairman. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. Stay where you are, if you would, Emma. We're going to take a little short break. We're going to come back to talk about the possibility that God might be gender neutral. Uh, we're also going to talk a bit about MPs who say that they deserve a medal after being in the Houses of Parliament. I'm not quite sure what they think they deserve a medal for exactly, but we'll, we'll see. Coming up, 0344 499 1000. Keep those calls coming in. We'll start taking those calls very shortly as well. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Vladimir Zelensky apparently arriving around about 10.30. We'll bring that live to you uh, right here at Downing Street. Uh, Peter Cardwell, our political editor, is all over that. We'll be bringing you the details of the meeting he has with Rishi Sunak. He's going to be um, addressing the House of Commons later on this afternoon as well, around about one o'clock. We'll also bring you that live. That'll be following Prime Minister's questions. Also following uh, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who's going to be making a statement about the report that's come out today about Prevent, which is, of course, the organisation which is supposed to monitor um, and fix people who have been radicalised, people who have been turned into terrorists uh, by various different groups. It turns out uh, that they haven't really been doing a very good job and not only um, have they been allowing terrorists to slip through their fingers, and we know of at least two cases where that happened, uh, but also uh, they've been treating people with terrorist um, kind of leanings as if they're people with mental health problems and they've been allowing them to hoodwink them not least the London Bridge killer, um, and also the man uh, who was found guilty of murdering uh, the MP, David Amos. So we'll come on to that with uh, uh, Dr. Raki Bassan a little bit later on. Right now, we're talking to Emma Revel, though, uh, from the Centre for Policy Studies. Emma, uh, I've got to ask you about God and the Church of England. Um, I don't know whether you're a uh, believer or not, but whether you are or not, I never thought the gender arguments which have been raging in Scotland and around Britain uh, would suddenly reach the, the uh, church door. They're now not sure, apparently, whether or not um, he's got a gender at all, according to the Church of England. Um, I thought this was a really interesting conversation this morning when I was chatting about this with a, a colleague when yeah. we were going through the papers. And it's one of those things where it seems as though this probably shouldn't be top of the Church of England's list of issues to tackle. <laughs> uh, I can think of uh, quite a few more issues they may wish to prioritise. But at the same time... You know, God is, is I'm, I'm not religious, but, you know, certainly my understanding is God is supposed to be, you know, above humanity. He's not human. Mm. I keep saying he automatically because I think that's, you know, that's the, the pronouns that we've been using. But surely God is beyond, you know, these these kind of boundaries. So surely would be gender neutral in that kind of sense. But the idea that, you know, what should be a priority for the Church of England is going through scripture and changing he to they. Yeah. I mean, also, the, the, it's, 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 in a way, it's, it's also part and parcel of this kind of um, uh, deconstruction, if you like, of tradition and deconstruction of, of, of belief systems, you know, because what the reason that they're even having this conversation is because they're asking whether they should be changing the wording of prayers, changing the wording of hymns. And I think for the people who are in the church, 
you know, they're probably the more traditional type of person anyway, and, and who don't really want to have you messing around with the Lord's Prayer. You know, I mean, does the Lord's Prayer get renamed if he's no longer considered to be a Lord? Yeah, you would imagine that this is possibly part of a conversation about how to broaden the appeal of the Church of England, but the people who are already in and very committed to the Church of England, possibly less likely to be interested in this kind of conversation, and the people that you may be appealing to with some more gender-neutral prayers are probably not going to sign up to such a, a, a traditional organisation in the first place. Yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, Our Father is the actual Lord's Prayer. And that's how it starts. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say our, I don't know, non-gendered person? I mean, what you can't really, you can't really change that, can you? Well, and, and, you know, words like parent has a different meaning to mother and to father. They have, I think I was reading someone this morning saying that you have different relationships with your mother and your father and they mean different things to different people. So, you know, if you fiddle about with the terms, you may appeal to some, but actually lose quite a few other people, you know, through the process. Yeah, well, you would have thought, would you not, anyone looking at what happened to Nicola Sturgeon and how she managed to tie herself up in so many knots over the, um, you know, the misgendering or otherwise uh, of a prisoner who's been done for rape, you should realise that this is just a, a minefield. And if you start renaming everything, it just ceases to make any sense. Well, and there is a difference, I suppose, between using the correct pronouns for a, a person you know physically exists in front of you versus the concept of God, uh, which is something very, you know, God's not going to tell you what pronouns they prefer. Uh, and I, I think it would just be... Uh, well, I mean, I unless, you, thinking, unless you talk to him, I mean, some people do, you know, apparently. This is true. And if, if in that circumstance, God tells you what they prefer, <laughs> feel free to, to, to use that indication yes. going forward. But I, in, I, this is really indic indicative to me of where we've sort of gone a bit wrong in society. And it brings us all the way back as well, I think, to why we don't laugh as much as we should, because people take everything so seriously. It's like, I'm now offended because God is a man, apparently. And so we must level that playing field and stop calling him a man and call him something completely different so that I'm no longer offended. Well, you know, that's not the way the world should be working, I don't think. Well, and also the fact that, I, from what I understand, this comes from a, a question that one bishop within the Synod asked another mm. um, about, you know, broadening some prayers and some, you know, sermons to, to be a bit more inclusive. And then it becomes, is God a man or is God a woman? And we do tend to sort of take these to their sort of natural extremes and then have that conversation not the conversation at the point at which it initially started. And as you say, then it becomes a very serious thing that people get very offended about on either side. And yeah. it's no wonder we're not laughing quite as much as we well, should. Well, that's it. I mean, I don't remember so many people being so offended about so much ever in my life. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, you're no longer considered to be presumably anything like Generation X. I don't know really what I should be calling you. I'm even careful not to offend you by putting you in the wrong category. But, you know, <laughs> um, the, the people who are now the sort of the youngest adults, I suppose, the 18 to 24 crowd, um, seem to be offended by absolutely everything. Yeah, that's. Uh, I appreciate the compliment. I'm. Uh, I'm a millennial, I'm afraid. OK, I'm fair enough. <laughs> I don't even know what that is really now, but now you carry on. I know it just yeah you're, you're right and people I think society and sort of discourse does encourage people to go to the extremes and then to stay there yeah. and not to have an open discussion and hear the other person's point of view and actually a, a little bit more sort of nuance in conversations probably would go quite a long way we'd probably be all a little bit 
a little bit happier for yes. us. Yes. Well, I think there's no accident that one of the reasons why people don't get along with one another as well and they don't sort of, um, uh, they take things too seriously is because they don't see each other very often. You know, they're not seeing people on a daily basis. There's an awful lot of people who still don't go to work every day. There's an awful lot of people who don't go to work at all. Um, loads of people who quite like working from home. You know, and this has been an, a constant refrain of mine ever since COVID, ever since the lockdown. You know, we have never quite recovered our old ways. And I think that's a mistake. That's true. And so much of our conversation now as well is is online. It's on you know places like, it's not just all on Twitter, but a lot of conversations are on Twitter. And I think that does encourage, you can't pick up on things if it's written down, whether that's WhatsApp or, you know, Slack, if you're working from home or, or on Twitter, there's a lot of nuances missing. You don't pick up on sarcasm quite as much. And then people get very quickly to a point of offense and misunderstanding. Mm. And actually, you know, if it wasn't so online, if it was a little bit more in person, you'd pick up on those nuances a bit easier. Yeah, absolutely right. Here's one for you uh, from Kieran. He says, how about Satan, male or female? Male, right? And then he says hypocrite. I don't know who he's calling hypocrite. He's calling me a hypocrite, Kieran. I don't know. I've no idea whether Satan is male or female. What do you think? I haven't met them yet. I'll let you know. Oh, okay. I haven't summoned them up. Uh, here's something that will make you laugh. Somebody's just shown me a, a tweet that was put out yesterday by the Right Honourable Grant Shapps. Uh, delighted that he's become the first Secretary of State for the new Department for Energy, Security and Net Zero. But in the final paragraph, he says, uh, bringing down bills and thereby helping to have inflation instead of half it, uh, which I suppose is one of those things that just happens when you don't pay attention to your tweets, but it is quite funny. Let's, f- let's finish up with um, uh, MPs. Apparently, there's an MPs committee. They're always having these committees to discuss their remuneration, which is always good to know. Apparently, uh, they say that rejection by voters can often be an emotional and traumatic experience and the noble enterprise of public office should be encouraged, defended and recognised. They already get a payoff, basically. What they're saying now is they should get more of a payoff Six figures would be nice, they say. That's what they get in Germany. Uh, but they should also get a medallion of service. Are they having a laugh? I, I think we shouldn't take all of these recommendations too seriously. I think, you know, the, I think what the recommendation is, is that after an MP service is finished, they could, you know, have some kind of event with family where they are given recognition for their public service. And actually... Being a, a, a politician of any kind, whether it's a local councillor or an MP, they are incredibly difficult jobs and they are at their heart public service. And I think we should be a bit more cognizant of that fact and, and recognise that a little bit more. But you can understand why MPs say MPs should get more money is uh, a difficult conversation to have with the public at any time, but also, yes. you know, when, everyone, when everyone's feeling the pinch. Um, but I, I think the same report says that after the 2019 election, the average amount received by an MP losing their seat was only £5,000. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening would love a £5,000 payoff. I'm not even sure if I believe that, actually, to be honest, because I remember doing a story once when um, we had to put a a paper out before the election result was known. And what we did know was the number of MPs who were leaving their jobs because they decided to retire or whatever. And they were all getting about 40 grand. So I think I think there's quite a decent payoff and they get a pension as well, regardless of how short a time they actually work. So I don't think they're too badly looked after. I think, as you say, this is really not the time to be discussing it. It's not. And I, I think as well, there, there is a perception that a lot of MPs go off uh, after their parliamentary careers to very well-paid jobs. And I think yeah. that is true if you've been a cabinet minister or a very vocal, very prominent backbencher. That's not true for actually quite a lot of MPs. And I, I think the 2019 election coming so fast after the 2017 election, a lot of MPs who lost their seats at that point 
didn't have the experience, didn't have ministerial careers to fall back on, and they probably did struggle a little bit more than someone leaving after, you know, 30 years as an MP, for example. Yes, absolutely right. Emma, got to run. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Emma Revel, Head of Communications at the Centre for Policy Studies, with her thoughts this morning on a great many things. Uh, how about this from um, Brad in Cambridge? Morning, Mike. It was only a matter of time before Wokey Welby decided that he knows more than God. I am a Christian, but I'm sorry to say that I'm finished with the church. It has just reached a point where it is meaningless. I think that's right. Um, here's one from Tony who says the UK is being perverted by Marxist fanatics in the MSM and academia. Even God is in play. It's madness. Well, wonder what God makes of it all. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're not laughing enough. So start laughing. Start telling me what's funny uh, and we'll get on a lot better. I promise you. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky appearing very shortly at Downing Street. Uh, he's coming to visit Rishi Sunak. Uh, I don't know what he's going to say to the House of Commons later, but I imagine it's going to be, thanks for your support, keep it up. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got a great many things to talk about this morning and I want to talk to you about every single one of them, of course. Uh, the church wants to say, maybe God's not a bloke. Maybe God should be gender neutral. But what about Jesus? What about uh, the Son of God? That's what he is. What about the Holy Ghost? I mean, I was raised as a Catholic, so I know a bit about this religion business, right? Um, and what I would say to you uh, is that there are women in the uh, Bible. There are men in the Bible. Uh, God is not really either. Um, so perhaps he should be gender neutral. But I just don't think you need to make that an official thing, do you? Generally speaking, the Son of God is a man. So Jesus would be a man. There have been feminists in the past who have said that Jesus maybe wasn't a man. Jesus definitely did exist. Whether you think God existed or not is another matter. Some women have also said maybe God is a woman. And some women have even portrayed God as a woman. Have, has the world gone mad? Let's talk to Joe's in Derby. Hello, Joe. Good morning, Mike. Morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Emma. I'm doing OK. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. What can I do for you? What's brown and sticky? Uh, I don't know. Tell me. A stick. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> I see, That's I'm laughing favorite. already. I'm Thank laughing. You. I mean, I wasn't expecting people to ring up and tell me jokes, but I don't mind if you want to do that. <laughs> no, but it's true, isn't it? Favorite. People take things far too seriously now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my da our dad was brilliant and very, very sort of sarcastic. And we, we grew up with that. We were laughing a lot of the time. Yeah. And whenever I need to have a laugh, I ring up or, or she rings me. My sister, my younger sister, Jen. Yes. And we have a right belly laugh about nothing. Yeah, right. But a lot of people, it goes above the head and then you're sort of laughing like a drain and they're looking at you as if to say, ooh. I mean, the range. thing is, there is an awful lot of funny stuff going on, uh, particularly from people who Ugh. think of themselves as very self-important. And my father's like exactly. yours. Um, he, yeah. he sort of taught me to be... Um, very sceptical, should we say, of people who were very full of themselves. And, and yeah, we, yeah, we used yeah. to laugh at people all the time. Well, luckily, we've got that. And it's a lifesaver. <laughs> Good. I think you need to have it, don't you? It really does. Okay. It really does help you get through the day. Joe, thank you very much indeed. Um, Pete says, lockdown stopped me having a retirement due in 2020 after 36 years of working. I'm not a supporter of MPs getting anything. Um, well, I mean, I think that's probably true. Um, Mr. Angry from Huddersfield says, our great country is going to the dogs. Taliban in our country, plus lunatics who don't know what a woman is. Idiots who think it's OK to glue themselves to roads. Bring back national service and the death penalty. Child molesters, child killers, rapists. Why waste money keeping them in prison for years? GB should stand for get a backbone. I won't even bother about religion. The world has gone mad. 
Okay then. Well, anything you find funny though? Seriously? I mean, there's got to be something, hasn't there? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Um, Now, here's the thing. One of the things I suggested that you might wish to laugh about um, is the fact that Insulate Britain um, have been up in court again. And Insulate Britain, as you know, are a source of great amusement for an awful lot of people, especially those uh, who think that they take themselves a bit too seriously. But yesterday, um, there was a court hearing in which one David Nixon, who calls himself a care worker from Barnsley, uh, was sent to prison for eight weeks, convicted of contempt of court because he refused to apologise for telling a jury that fuel poverty and the climate crisis had motivated his actions. Now, apparently, he's not very happy about this. Uh, He's basically telling everyone um, and anyone who wants to listen to him that he's been very hard done by. And all he was trying to do uh, was basically to express why he loved what he was doing, i.e. sitting on roads, blocking things, constantly being a nuisance, right? He disobeyed a judge's order not to mention the climate crisis as motivation during his trial, These people don't think the law applies to them. These people, seemingly, have no clue about how the law actually operates. He's 36 years old. Uh, He's a care worker, right? He used his closing address to tell the jury about why he was protesting. I mean, sooner or later, some of these people will understand that actually they don't have popular support. Ordinary people in this country do not like having their cars stopped, do not like having their buses stopped do not like uh, not being able to get anywhere. It's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. They're not keen on people who want to make a public nuisance of themselves, right? This guy was one of those who blocked a junction in the City of London on the 25th of October of 2021, right? Basically, he said, climate change is what drives him to do what he does. He said it was impossible for him not to tell the jury, even though he was instructed not to, He was told not to defy the court twice. He did it anyway. He said, It may not seem like it at the moment, but I'm at peace with my decisions. I'm in your hands, basically. If London continues to flood, if there are more wildfires and 40-degree heat, these are decisions that you're having to live with. And I think that I've seen what has happened, and it underlines that climate delay and climate action is a problem. Well... Off you go. Eight weeks in prison. Next case. Thank you very much indeed. Let's talk to Dr. Rakiba San, social policy analyst and writer, uh, because the Shawcross report has come out into Prevent. And what we know about Prevent is that it doesn't prevent what it's meant to prevent, which is people who have been radicalised and becoming terrorists doing harm to ordinary innocent members of our society. Rakiba, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. I don't suppose this report's findings will come as a massive surprise to people, but it does seem once again to highlight the kind of naivety of our justice system where, you know, we've got these do-gooders who believe that if you're radicalised, if you are willing to kill somebody because of your religion or because of some other belief that you have, that you will somehow be, you know, miraculously cured of that uh, by talking to some people uh, in a lecture theatre. I agree, Mike. I think that all too often our counter-extremism structures, they're suffered from a great deal of idealism yeah. uh, more than anything. I think that there hasn't been enough hard-headed thinking in terms of how we go about um, counter-extremism in our country. And I think that, well, some of the reported findings of the Shawcross Review 
they won't come as any surprise to me. I think that on top of that, we have a number of public bodies which are involved in the broader prevent scheme, uh, which in my view suffer from a progressive liberal bias. Mm. And I think that's a real problem uh, when you have organisations who may well view British Muslims as some kind of homogeneous monolithic group which is oppressed by the British state, then how are we meant to robustly tackle Islamist extremism mm. if there are practitioners involved within the prevent scheme and indeed organisations involved within it who have a mindset which works against that? Yeah. And I mean, do you think, as I do, that actually a lot of this is driven by a kind of misplaced belief that just to kind of single out Islamist threats and Islamic um, fundamentalists and Islamic kind of um, radicalisation, that that's somehow viewed as being racist. And that's how we got to the problems that we had with the grooming gangs being ignored. Uh, and, and similarly here, where they didn't really investigate Islamist groups, but they, they tried more to, uh, to investigate, um, you know, what they regarded as incels uh, or other sort of what they called far right groups, which are clearly not as big of a threat. Well, I wouldn't trivialise the threat of far-right extremism, Mike. As I've said before uh, in previous interviews, that is the fastest-growing um, terror threat in the UK. Yeah, but fastest-growing doesn't mean anything, Rakim. Absolutely. It, means, and, it, and means, that it a... means that there's now you know 10 people instead of one. You know, that's uh, what that, it means. And, that, that, absolutely, and that's the point that I'd make, that many people mix fasted-growing with the prevailing terror threat. Mm. The prevailing terror threat is very clearly presented by Islamist extremism. Yeah in the UK. That's reflected when you look at the ideological composition of individuals who are on the MI5's wider terror-related watch list. And that's also reflected in the wider prison population when it comes to those who have been convicted of terror-related offences. Yeah. And I hope that the uh, Short Cross Review underlines that because there's a great many people who seem to think they're intelligent but can't understand the difference between prevailing terror threat and fastest growing mm. terror threat. Right. And also the two that we know of, uh, which failed really, really in a, in a deadly way, the London Bridge attacker, uh, who was allowed not only to uh, leave the facility where he was being held, but he was actually allowed to go out without an escort of any kind. He was on a train on his own, uh, he had his own laptop. He went to the Fishmongers Hall here on the other side of London mm. Bridge, uh, ended up uh, strapping a knife to himself, trying to kill people. Then we had the guy who killed David Amos, the MP, both of them, uh, you know, sort of very much graduates of the prevent scheme. Well, and I think that the the, the uh, perpetrator behind the Texas synagogue uh, siege, yeah. he had also interacted with the prevent scheme. So what is clear as day is that the uh, prevent scheme, how it's currently organised and structured, is simply not fit for purpose. And when you hear of those kind of cases, what that does is undermine public confidence in our uh, existing counter-extremism structures. Mm. And, and I do feel when it comes to uh, de-radicalisation, I, I think there needs to be a healthy dose of realism when it comes to de-radicalisation. Now, there's, there are different stages of de-radicalisation, but what is clear is that we are, there has been too much faith being put into de-radicalisation schemes. And quite often that you, you've seen uh, situations where you've had individuals who have duped those involved in those schemes, pretending that they have been de-radicalised. Mm. And then when in reality they remain 
hardened fundamentalists. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously very easy to, to hoodwink these characters in Prevent, um, and you can't really blame the people for doing it, in the same way that some of the people arriving on small boats into this country tell people they've been trafficked so they know they can stay, or they tell people they're homosexual so they know they can't be sent back, or they tell people that their lives are in danger if they go back to their original country. You've written a paper just recently as well about integrating Britain's communities and how you know mm. that isn't going particularly well. And all of these things to me are connected. Absolutely. I think that they are somewhat interconnected. And I think that it touches on one of the points you made um, already in this interview, Mike, is that there's a great deal of political correctness yeah. and racial and religious identity politics. And I think that another problem is that a, a lot, uh, there are people who see radicalization um, as some kind of mental illness. They're, what they're doing, they're ignoring mm. the ideological character of it. Now, of course, there may be um, situations where mental vulnerabilities leave an individual more exposed to being radicalised. That, that, that is a genuine possibility. But I think ultimately, when it comes to counter extremism, we have to encourage individuals to take personal responsibility for hugely problematic and indeed dangerous ideological beliefs that they may hold. Otherwise, there's no chance of de-radicalisation taking place in those kind of situations. Yeah, it really is unfortunate, isn't it? Because um, it's not just that the system doesn't work. People die as a result of the system not working. What do you think will be um, the result of this Shawcross report? I mean, who's going to take notice of it? Who's going to fix what Prevent does and try to prevent, if you like, these kinds of horrors happening again? Well, I'd like to think that the current government will take notice um, of the Shawcross review, and I think that, that I think one of the likely findings of the Shawcross review will be the fact that it's let down anti-Islamist British Muslims. I think that the existing counter-extremism structures they don't make use of the underground intelligence and good faith of anti-Islamist British Muslims who quite often face various forms of Islamist intimidation on a near daily basis, mm. and their concerns over Islamist extremism. Um, the level of concern is not too dissimilar to the wider population. So I think that's the one thing I really want the government to take notice of now. OK, well, let's hope that they do. Dr. Rakib Hassan, he's got a new paper out, as I said. Uh, if you want to get your hands on it, uh, you can find it via his Twitter account, Rakib Hassan, uh, or rakibhassan.com, uh, Our Society, Integrating Britain's Communities. Uh, but also we'll be talking more about this prevent story because Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, uh, will be getting up in the Commons after Prime Minister's questions today, around about 12.30, to make her statement about this report from Shawcross to see what it is that the Home Office can do to fix this massive hole in our national security. Because that is entirely what it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to do. Uh, we've got two hours in which to do it. Uh, we've got Vladimir Zelensky arriving here uh, on our shores. He's coming to meet uh, the king. He's also coming to meet Rishi Sunak. Uh, he's going to be in Downing Street, we think, sometime in the next hour, possibly. He landed at Stansted, so he could be having some trouble getting through. You never know because it's a bit slow there sometimes. I'm only joking. We're all going to talk about many things as well, including laughter, including God. Uh, is he a man or not? Is he even there? Uh, I'm joined in this hour, I'm delighted to say, uh, by 
aka uh, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, businessman and otherwise known as the Black Farmer. Welcome. It's good to be back on your Very show good to again. have you Thank back. You. And it's a great day for you to be here as well because we've got a wide, wide like, sort of, you know, palette of things to I'll discuss. I'll tell you what, I'm really excited to talk to you about some of these sort of <laughs> subjects, especially the thing about God. Yeah, is God male or female? I can't wait to get on to that I mean, let's subject. do it. I mean, I imagine that, um, I suppose it had to happen. You know, the conversation had to happen after all the gender conversations that are being had. And that's sort of Somebody stuff. would have to ask the question. And that sort of stuff makes me really frustrated because the Church of England should not be getting involved in that sort of conversation. And what it indicates is this, is that the Church of England is what I call um, top down. You have all these intellectuals Mm. up there um, having debates about whether God is a male or or female. And they shouldn't be doing what I think the church should be responsible for, which is about how do you help people during their times of suffering? Yes. And um, my big frustration with the Church of England is this. I've been campaigning for a while now that um, if you are from a non-traditional farming background, Mm. the chances of you getting land to go and do farming is almost impossible. Now, the only way around this is that um, there are a lot of institutions that owns a lot of land. And one of those institutions is the Church of England. The Church of England owns a vast way of land. Mm. And what they do is that they just rent it out to the same old traditional families and then get the money in. And I think part of actually being responsible for the rest of society is saying, look, there's a lot of people there that would love to get into farming. They can't afford to do it. So why don't we have a special program where we could say, well, a certain proportion of our land, we will actually lease and rent out to people from non-traditional farming backgrounds. Now, that sort of stuff is far more practical, far more constructive than having debates about whether God is a male or female. And it's much more more likely to have a, a, a good effect on society than sitting around, as you say, in what used to be smoke-filled rooms, but aren't anymore because you're not allowed to smoke, um, but you can still sit there. And they just sort of talk absolute nonsense. Because also the problem, I would have thought, for the Church of England is that more people are wondering whether there is a God, never mind whether it's actually male or female. Is there a God? I I mean, I don't even know if there is. But I think the times when people ask themselves that question, it's usually when they're really ill. And, yes. I, and I can remember being in hospital, God, about eight years ago with acute myeloid leukemia mm. and being on death's door. Yes. That's the time you start saying, is there a God? And right. what is your you start legacy? Praying. That's when you My start brother-in-law, th- funnily enough, who didn't particularly believe in God, he got cancer and he was like, I believe in God. I'm going to pray just in case there is one. Well, well you I know? Think the thing is this, is that, you, you know, it's all about having hope. Yes. When, when you get into the, the, the realms of things outside reason and logic, mm. You need to have something. Yeah. For some people, that is religion. Something just helps you get through this massive uncertainty. Yes. And that is where the church should be really pushing mm. and helping people. There's a lot of need out there. Mm. And I think the church should be focusing far more on how could they help people in these particular points of crisis in yeah. their life when they need something to help them get through it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because there's an awful lot of hypocrisy, isn't there, around many of these landowning organisations, because you're right. I mean, I mean, look at the Duchy of, uh, of Cornwall. You know, uh, King Charles passed it on to Prince William. 160,000 acres of land they've got, right? I'm now, I'm not going to particularly have a go at them, but there's an awful lot you could do with 160,000 acres, which they're not doing. Yeah, and you there? see, and, you know, I've been on this programme before and I've said, look, what we need to do is that we really need to uh, bring some life into farming. Yeah. It's just the old traditional farmers. We've got to make it easier for people from non-traditional farming backgrounds to actually get into farming. Mm. Actually, I want to do a bit of an ad here because um, yeah. I have... 
have just launched um, something called the New Face of Farming. Okay. And the whole idea behind that is to invite 16 and 18-year-olds to go down to Ritley Agricultural College. Mm -hmm. Ritley is an agricultural college in Kent. To come and spend a weekend, a weekend, just to get a feel for what it's like to to, to work and live in a rural environment. Mm. And then if they like it, they could then go and actually do courses at these agricultural colleges. That's a good idea. Because, again, if you are from a town and a city that is not um, agricultural, you don't know what it's like. But you might feel that it's something you'd be interested in, but there's no way for you to go and do it. Mm. Because as a kid being brought up in Small Heath in Birmingham, I loved being on my dad's allotment. And that was the thing that gave me the idea that one day I would like to own my own farm. I had no idea of how to sort of do it. Luckily, I was into the position where I was was able to earn enough money Mm. so I was able to go and buy buy land. The only way you can get land these days is if you've got enough money to do it. And And it's it's not cheap, is it? And it's not cheap, and it shouldn't be like Mm. that. That is why what I want to see is I want to see initiatives that gives people an opportunity to get access to land. So the whole thing about this um, new face of farming initiative is to start young because I believe there's a lot of young people who would like to do that, but they just don't know how to do that. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think that that goes for almost any business. And and we've got an apprentice scheme here now which which encourages people to come in and look at what all sorts of different jobs Apprentice schemes in in the media. I think they're great. They're brilliant. And because I'm a guy that left school without any qualifications at yeah. all. I'm not one of these people that went to university. Yeah. I sort of, I learned by people giving me an opportunity to watch them do their yeah. job. And I think that you learn a lot more watching and seeing Absolutely. people doing it rather than sitting in the classroom getting mm. bored to death right. trying to actually educate through a system. But this is what I think they've got wrong. And we'll talk about Rishi Sunak and your view of him in, the, in a minute. But, you know, this whole kind of idea that Rishi Sunak came out and said, let's all make sure that kids are learning maths until they're 18. It's well, crazy. why? Why? I, What's I, the point of that? Even I, even today, I'd be rubbish at maths. And, yeah. it, and this is what happens. And, and Tony Blair did this thing, education, education. Because they are the sort of people that had the type of brain that meant they'd be able to absorb the information in, in, a, in a classroom, yeah. they then think that every kid is going to be like that. There are tons of kids like me mm. that actually gets thrown on society. There are far dustbin. more kids like you. Uh, actually, absolutely. You know? That get thrown on society's dustbin heap because the educational system actually does not work for them. Yeah. And I think that if we actually didn't have these people always advocating that the route you've got to go down is through the universities, mm. otherwise you're, you're nothing. Yeah. I think it's a waste. And I employ people who've been to university. Yeah. And I tell you, the moment they start to get their foot in the real world, they suddenly realise that most of the time... They shouldn't have bothered. They well, shouldn't have bothered. I was talking to somebody who's on the, uh, the apprentice scheme here, who, wait, who went to university and is now on the apprentice scheme, and she was basically saying, I might as well not have bothered. Yeah. I should have just come in here three years ago, and then I would have already advanced myself, and I'd have a decent job and decent money and all the rest of it. And one of my kids is like that. He's, he's not particularly academic. He doesn't really know what he wants to do. He's talking about travelling. I'm like, fine, do that. But just get yourself into a place where you can start working and then see what you what you want to do. And I tell you, the other thing that actually demonstrates that university doesn't necessarily give you everything because most of the successful people that you will see, some, they're dyslexic. Yeah. And I'm dyslexic as well. And what dyslexia does, it means that you have to train your brain mm. in order to think outside of the box. Right. And therefore, when you have a problem, you come to it from a totally different angle. Whereas, actually, if you're trained into mm. a particular way of thinking, your thinking then restricts yes. thinking outside of the box. And I think education as well now, particularly in, in secondary schools, in state secondary schools anyway, um, 
really kind of teaches the wrong stuff because they don't teach you to be inquisitive. They don't teach you to be different. They teach you to conform. They teach you to listen. They teach you to believe everything you're told. You know, that's not what I call education. It's one of the biggest curses we have in society. Yeah. It's about conforming, conforming. And then what it does, it creates this thing about a woke society, yeah. about people feeling that you could only operate within the certain parameters. And anybody operating outside, they're odd, they're different. Mm. They've got to be um, castigated. There's something wrong with them. There's yeah. something wrong yeah. with them. But it's those people who change the world. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the dreamers, the people who think outside of the box. They change the world. They come up with a well, well, I was saying this about my, one of my sons who, who run, has little run-ins every now and then. He's brilliant, academically brilliant, but disciplinary-wise, not so great. Um, but he runs up against these th- people all the time, and for, because he doesn't like being told well, see, what I to was do. Like that. In you my know. day, they used to be they was they were still allowed to cane you. Yeah, yeah. And, me and too. I was I was, I was in, in a slipper. Well, no, mine was a cane. I was in the headmaster's office, um, and I think they got to a stage where you know they got fed up of caning me, and yeah. the, the best punishment he ever did for me says, right. You've got to come in and you've got to stand outside my office from nine to four right. for two weeks. Wow. And that broke my spirit. That That's would. A, because it's the boring. Was no problem. I mean, the, the slipper, we used to have a league table in my school. It was like, how many of you had this week? You know, yeah. nobody cared. Nobody but, cared. But, but, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, Pythagoras would never have come up with his theorem if he'd just gone to school every day and, told, and did what he was told. Yeah. You know, Archimedes, the same. You know, these guys were mavericks. They well, went out and did something well, different. You've got to challenge the status quo. And I think that actually the people who are we should really look up to are those people who are not frightened yeah. of challenging right. the, 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 the status quo. Definitely. One of the things I'm always saying about life and people, people are always in search of certainty. Mm. And if there's anything that is certain in life, yeah. that is life is uncertain. Exactly. And I what, had a friend who used to say to me, um, what's your five-year plan? I'm like, I haven't got one. Yeah. He's like, well, you should always have a five-year plan. I said, why? He said, because you should always know where you're trying to go. He got fired about a year after he told me this, and he went, "Now I see what you mean." Yeah, but you because see, he was devastated by losing his job, and he he had this five year plan which has now been blown up. And what I say to people is this: you know, rather than desperately search for certainty, accept the fact that certainty does not exist, right. but actually get the confidence to say that whatever I meet on my journey exactly. in life, I will find a way of getting so around it. Yeah. And the story you've just told, because my I had a brother that died um, a couple of years ago, mm. and he was of the mentality that I'm going to work until I get to pension age, yeah. and that's when I could start living. Right. Unfortunately, you know, he died of cancer, right. and therefore he never, it, it never ever got there. Yeah. And I just think that what people need to do is they need to not to be frightened of uncertainty. Yes. Uncertainty is, in a sense, the thing. it's a precious gift, uncertainty. It is. Because it keeps us on our toes. I love it. It keeps us alive. And it's, I mean, you, you're, I mean we came in this morning. We had a completely different show. Um, and then we were told uh, Vladimir Zelensky's turning up. We were like, oh, great. OK, well, we, we're still waiting for him to turn up. He's on his way to Downing Street. We'll have to throw a few things around, chuck it up in the air. Yeah. That's, what, that's the kind of show I like to do. Well, and, I don't and, like to come in and go, everything's been planned since yesterday. Yeah. So what? So well, rip and, it up. So uncertainty does two things. That people either get excited by it, and yeah. so you and I are the types of people that are excited by uncertainty, or actually they, they it, it makes them fearful. Mm. They think, my God, you know, things. Oh, some are, people uh, hate it. Yeah, they, 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 think, they it's, think it's disorder. They, they think it's sort of disorder. So I think for your listeners, if they are listening to this, is that which one are you? Are you the sort of person that gets frightened by by things that are uncertain? Yeah. Or does it excite you? Right. And excitement is, and even if you say to yourself, this is exciting, you are going to feel different about mm. it. 
than being fearful about it. And things, the thing about being an entrepreneur is this, is that everybody feels fear. Yeah. It's then how you actually, your, your attitude towards fear. Well, this is it. Courage is not about not being frightened. As yeah. I always say to my kids, it's about dealing with that and, and taking the fear on and somehow conquering it. You can still be scared. There's nothing wrong with being scared. Yeah, and I think there's there's a wonderful quote that I was listening to that you, you've got to, in order to get to, to courage, you've got to go through uncertainty. You, you've got to go through vulnerability. And adversity, which and, a lot of adversity. kids now are not being taught to do. They're being taught to be snowflakes, to complain, to say, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to do that because it upsets me. I don't want to read, you know, Emily Bronte because it's old fashioned and it conjures up images that I don't wish to know about. And it's like, what? But Why? I, it's, I, I blame the type of society yeah. that we're becoming, where uh, people are being model coddled. They're, they're, they have this sort of expectation that somehow that they're owed mm. and that adversity is not good. Right. Um, nature tells us that adversity is, is, is essential. Those people who are even you know, watering their house plants, yeah. for example, they know that you can't overwater it because it will die. Sure. It has to have an element of struggle. Struggle is, in, is, is essential right. to and our And there are being. certain rules in presumably your business in farming you can't go against. You know, the nature will tell you this is what's going to happen in well, June, this is what's going to happen in September. You can't fight that. Well, So therefore, if we follow the rules of nature to our lives... Is it Mother Nature, though? The, the, course, that would it, be the question. Better, because it's been like, you know, diversity is very, very important in nature. You've got to rotate your crops. Yeah. You can't, you know, you've got to make sure that your animals are not sort of interbred. So mm. nature is telling us that diversity is important, that struggle is yeah. important in order to get hardy um, products. Mm. Now, what we need to do as human beings is to recognise that that makes us stronger yeah. people rather than thinking that everything has to be very soft for us. And I think we're now getting into a society where it's getting a bit soft it is getting a bit and soft. You, don't get me on to strikes. I'm going to get you on to strikes in a minute because we've got to stop for a minute, but I'm going to keep you here because there's a lot more to talk about. Okay. Uh, we are here with the black farmer, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones. And, of course, uh, we want to hear from you as well because this is all fascinating stuff. This is the only place you hear this kind of thing, by the way. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, the black farmer, about a whole bunch of stuff. But let's move on while we're here uh, to talk about Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, because um, I worry that he is a guy that doesn't like uncertainty. I think he's the sort of bloke that likes everything in order, put in front of him, you know, what are we doing today? Today we're doing that, tomorrow we'll do this. Yeah, Rishi is a classic manager. Mm. And what this country needs is a leader. Yes. And you need to have a totally different mindset to be a leader. Mm. I must say, I saw the interview that he did with Piers. Yeah. And he should be really pleased with that. Yes. Because you it was the it, best interview I've seen him do, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons why it was a good interview is that you got a flavour of mm. the guy rather than every time you normally see Richard, you just think, actually, he's memorising his script. Yes. You just feel that is a bit of a machine. Mm. And then if you are going to bring about change, you want to get people to feel they've got a leader who's going to um, help them through it. And the three things that you need to really focus on at this present time in this country is the NHS yeah. that has to be sorted out. Yeah. Growth. Well, the country is in survival mode at mm. the moment. And anybody would tell you living in survival mode is not good for the human spirit. So we need to come up with a programme yeah. of, of growth. And um, 
we've got to sort out um, the, 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 the unions. You know, I'm old enough to remember, I'm 65, oh. and I'm old enough to remember the misery that this country Me went too. through. And that the, the whole sense that the, the, the unions felt that they were owed. Yeah. And there's a lot of young people now that wouldn't realise that we've been through this loop before. Yes. And that the public sector workers, they do, you know, they do well. Those of us who are um, in, in private industry, we don't have the luxury of the sort of pensions that, no, the, that, these, that, that these guys have. I'm going to have to work until I drop Me in too. order to, um, to live. And yeah. then when you hear these statistics about people not having to return back to work, I'm just right. thinking, my God, how could they afford to do I know. that? Because I, I couldn't know. afford but um, the, the to But the pensions are never mentioned. I mean, we did a thing about it yesterday, about how big the pension is if you're a teacher, if you're a nurse, if you're you know working in the NHS. And it's across the board. It's not just for the sort of frontline workers. But you're absolutely right. And what people don't understand when I tell them, younger people, is that all the unions that represented the industries of the 70s, all those industries have gone. Because yeah. they killed them all off. They made it impossible for people to manufacture anything in this country, which is why we don't really manufacture much anymore. The car industry, gone. Steel industry, gone. Yeah. Shipbuilding, gone. All of that. Coal industry, gone. Yeah. Because of the unions at the end of the day. And I think what's really interesting about the number of strikes that we're seeing at the moment is that I think the unions are going to discover that it's not going to have any impact at all. No. And that's because the world has changed. Mm. And people have now been able to adapt to it. You know, back in our day, when the unions went on strike, it had a massive That was a proper, yeah, a, a, proper general strike. I remember yeah. the three-day week. I remember sitting at home. I tell my kids, they can't believe it. Yeah. I go, yeah, we had one hour of electricity in the morning yeah. and one hour in the evening. And, and I like, can remember the dust What did you strike? do the rest of the time? I said, well, we just sat there yeah. talking yeah, but in I, candlelight. But what happened, you see, I think the pandemic um, trained people how to cope. Yeah. how they're able to adjust their lives. And the fact now we've got the technology, it means that, well, people don't have to go into to, uh, into the office. And so the unions are going to have to um, re re rethink. But in terms of where we go forward as a country, I think that what we need to do is that we, we need to seize on the benefits of Brexit. I'm really frustrated that three years on, the things that we should have been doing, yeah. we're still not doing. Right. Because the whole thing about... Um, not being part of Europe, is that it means we could go at our own speed. We're not sort of dragged down by this machine. But the establishment are the ones that are still holding us back. You know, mm. the, the, the idea that we still are not sorting out the migration issue yes. is so, so frustrating. And if because I it was... Seems the, straightforward, doesn't if it? If I was the leader, I would say, look, we're going to sort this out. Take me to court. Yeah. You know, we just like these, the, these left-wing... Um, um, solicitors are doing at the moment is they're dragging it out. Well, yeah. why can't the government do the same sort of stuff? This yes. is, the people voted for this. We would do it. Okay, we'll go through the court yeah. process, but whilst we're going through the court process, we will start this process yes. anyhow. It is madness. And I think you need the type of leader to say, this is what people voted mm. for. This is what we're going to have make happen, and we're not going to let the process stop us. And right. that's one of my big frustrations. And grasp the nettle and don't be frightened. But that's what they seem to all be, is frightened. Exactly. And I just think, for me, my concern is this, is that um, Brexit was a fantastic opportunity, but it would only work if we're going to maximise and doing things at speed. Yeah. And we had a slight taster of that when we had the rollout for the, uh, during the, the vaccination, yes. because we weren't part of Europe. We and they were having it. a terrible time doing they it. They were having a terrible time. So, so we've had a glimpse of what is possible if we're prepared to go things at speed, because that's the only advantage mm. of being outside Europe, is that we could do things at our own pace, yes. 
we could be more innovative in how we do things but we're being prevented from doing that because the, the establishment there is this rump of, of establishment people isn't there exactly who kind of make sure that nothing really is a success in yeah. that area because the, it's yeah, in yeah. their interest to and, keep but, saying it's failing and, we, and it's all there's a lot of people who their job is to say no mm. Um, that, oh, you can't do this minister, or this will right. be the consequence. And this is the big problem. And that's and the civil service, isn't it? It is the civil service. And that, so in, in, in my business, I say to people, look, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Because if you spend all your time worrying about all the possible consequences of what may go wrong, mm. you don't go forward. In going forward, mistakes will happen. Yeah. And I'm a great believer that actually the only way you know you, you're working to the maximum, whether that's in your life generally or, or in your business, is by the mistakes that you make. Your mistakes are the things that teach you. But if you're not making mistakes, it means you're not working yeah. to your max. And your, if you're it, weighing everything up and trying to weigh one thing against another thing and not deciding and never making a decision... Nothing happens. And this it is becomes one the, indolent. And this is one of the frustrations about the, 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 the civil service. It's mm. all about, whether, and the NHS, it's all about not making mistakes. Yeah. If, you, if you work in that sort of mentality, you're not working at speed. And that is what we have to do. There needs to be a cultural change in this country rather than a, uh, the, 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 the expectation that somehow this mystical government is there to look after our interests. And but that's also us. a hangover, isn't it, from COVID, that we now believe, or oh. many more people than should believe, that the government is, is going to get them out of a problem. Like, you know, the mortgage has gone up. Oh, I need some help from the government. No, you don't. Yeah. You took out a mortgage, deal with it. The interest rates have gone up. They used to do that all the time. I'm old enough to remember that. Oh, yeah. That you didn't buy a house with the absolute surety that you were going to make a fortune. You might not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about what, how do we give people back personal responsibility? Mm. That is, that's where we've got to, is that people have suddenly felt that actually it's someone else's responsibility. It's the NHS responsibility. It's the teacher's responsibility. Yeah. But you as an individual actually need to come back there. I'm given the opportunities to go and succeed and do well. Mm. And therefore, things become my responsibility. That is what I think we need to have yeah. in this country. And let us make the money and then let us pay the tax. It, you know, don't give me a handout that I don't need. Exactly. Don't collect money from me to give to somebody else that you shouldn't be taking. Yeah. You know, it's not difficult, is it? One of the things we were talking about earlier on is that how do we give more support to the, the small businesses mm. who are the backbone yeah. to this country? And I just do not think that there's anyone that really represents their interests or even understands mm. what these people go through. And when I talk about small businesses, I'm talking about the taxi driver. Yeah. You know, that's a small business. I'm talking about the plumber, the electrician, yeah. all of these people, somebody who's the dressmaker. Oh, there's tons and these are all the people. These are all the people that the likes of David Lammy says should be going on the tube, take their work on the tube. Well, sorry, if you're a, a plasterer or you're a plumber, you got a lot of gear. You have to take a van. You know, I'm sorry if it's killing the climate. Deal with it. And, and exactly. And one of the problems about the people who, in, in a sense, um, who are in government is that they don't have experience of real life. No, they do not have experience of real life. And I think if we had more people who have experience of real life, we would probably get things done faster. Yes. Because it's and it's one of the things that sort of Liz Trust discovered is that you may have the the the, the intellectual 
idea of what may, what, what may work, mm. but in practice it doesn't because right. either the timing's wrong, the communication's wrong. She's a great demonstration. You can have a great idea, but if you don't know how to communicate right. it, you well, are going I to I mean, fail. she did an interview this week as well uh, with The Spectator, and it was quite baffling as to how she couldn't see what was coming. That you know, Here was a woman who had been made Prime Minister, who everybody thought was going to be good, who literally didn't have a clue, didn't even know what was uh, coming down the pike, didn't know that what she was doing was likely to cause that after effect in the markets and was completely, absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah, oh, we're was. just going to stop for a second because it appears that Vladimir Zelensky is arriving in Downing Street. Uh, he's in a great big Range Rover. Um, he's about to get out of it and wander in. So we'll keep that on screen for you just while we talk and while we say uh, goodbye because this has been a fascinating conversation, by the way. Zelensky's here. Um, a lot of people have mixed feelings about the whole business of Ukraine. But I listened this morning to a, a report from um, uh, from inside one of the sort of towns that's under siege. And this little girl was seven years old living in a basement because she can't go outside. And you just think, my God, you know, we think we've got problems in this country. But, you know, it's, it's horrific there. It is terrible, really. And I, I, I don't know what he's trying to achieve by, by coming here. It's all pretty good. But at the end of the day... There's a deal will eventually need to be made with the Russians. I mean, yeah. how, however you feel about it, um, the Russians are not going to go away. No. A deal would need to be made. Now, I don't know what deal that, that, that is, but it's the whole thing mm. about when you're someone's neighbour, um, what, whatever the rights or wrong... You can't just keep chucking stuff over the fence, can you? You can't keep chucking stuff. And what, whatever... Whatever the rights or wrongs in this, a deal will eventually have to be made. Mm. And yeah, I'm not qualified to know what sort of deal, but I think common sense says that it's not just going to go away. Yeah. He's standing now on the, um, uh, the, 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 the front step of Downing Street. Uh, he's in his kind of combat fatigues. He's waving, he's shaking hands with Rishi Sunak. We'll bring you more on that. Um, but yeah, I think it's also this is a bit, a little bit about um, Rishi Sunak putting down a marker and saying, you know, by the way, it's all very well you telling us how great Boris Johnson is, but I'm the guy that gives you the tanks and the money. So would you mind just coming and doing a photo op with me? Oh yeah, so it is actually just looking at these pictures here. So yeah, it's um, it makes um, him look very good. They're shaking hands there yeah. at, at the moment. So. Um, it's They're all, both the same size, which is also interesting. It, it, that means Zelensky's a lot smaller than you thought. Oh yeah. And, yeah, I mean, the, the thing, it, they make nice pictures. And um, as I said, a deal eventually will need to be had. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's just terrible, the, the, the lives and the, and the suffering um, that's going on yeah. there at the moment. Mm. And um, I would like to see the thing sort of resolved sooner rather than later. Yes, I think so. Well, listen, Wilfred, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, that thank you for inviting me. A really me interesting half an hour, I think. And we'll do it again soon. OK, well, thank I'm you sure. for having me. Uh, that is the black farmer and uh, there's even things we, we didn't get to but we will get to but we should now talk about uh, Zelensky and his arrival Peter Cardwell um, is down in Westminster for us Peter um, talk us through uh, what's going on talk us through Zelensky's day well, President Zelensky arrived at Stansted Airport uh, just about an hour ago and, of course, got here a lot faster than most people can because he will have had those blue lights flashing and the uh, police bringing him to Downing Street, where he's just arrived for a meeting with Rishi Sunak. He is going to be in Downing Street now for some time. I would imagine the men will uh, talk about further military aid from the United Kingdom to uh, Ukraine, which is being announced today. More of that £2.3 in military aid that we have given them. In fact, we're training 
uh, up to 30,000 Ukrainian troops, 10,000 of them already, probably 20,000 or so more in terms of how to use tanks. We'll also be training in the UK uh, and the two men will be talking about the fact that airmen and seamen will be trained as well here in the UK. The British military will be training them. So that's something the men are going to be talking about. There's further aid as well in terms of tanks that are going to be sent to Ukraine and of course President Zelensky after his meeting with Rishi Sunak in 10 Downing Street will travel just a few minutes across the road to the Houses of Parliament where he will be giving a historic address to both Houses of Parliament. That's going to be in uh, Westminster Hall which is the oldest part of Parliament, a huge hall where people like Nelson Mandela and uh, American presidents uh, have addressed both Houses of Parliament so there's a a bit of a bun fight for seats in there this morning because of course nobody knew about this until this morning but a historic visit Uh, President Zelensky has only been to Washington and Poland uh, so this is really his second or third depending on how you look at it visit to the uh, anywhere outside Ukraine since the Ukraine war started so a historic day for the UK and uh, those two men will be of course getting down to business very very soon in terms of their discussions in Downing Street. Excellent stuff. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell reporting into us there from Westminster where uh, Vladimir Zelensky will be appearing in um, the Houses of Parliament, speaking to both houses, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. We're seeing him inside now, Downing Street, uh, with Rishi Sunak. Obviously, they'll be having talks up, leading up to uh, Prime Minister's questions, which gets underway um, at midday. You're watching uh, the Downing Street feed even as we speak. Uh, we'll be getting statements, I'm sure, from both of them at some point shortly. Uh, coming up next, though, we're going to go to James Heal, who's diary editor at The Spectator, will get his view on what's going on today and his preview as well of what's likely to happen during Prime Minister's questions later on uh, in the next hour. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've been watching uh, President Zelensky from Ukraine uh, inside Downing Street. We'll bring you more on that, of course, as it comes. There will no doubt be a statement being made uh, either later on this afternoon or possibly before uh, Zelensky addresses the Joint Houses of Parliament, which are, of course, going to be taking place in Westminster Hall after about one o'clock this afternoon. We've got PMQs to come as well, of course, at midday. Let's go now live down to uh, College Green. James Heal, diary editor at the Spectator uh, is there for us. James, very good afternoon. Very good morning to you, I should say. Morning, Mike. It's been a busy old morning so far. Um, not only did we get the surprise announcement that the, uh, um, the, the Ukrainian leader was coming into town, um, but he hasn't got a lot of time in Downing Street before they all have to get down here for Prime Minister's questions. Yes, that's right. And um, he's expected to be addressing Parliament later as well. But uh, I think today will be, you know, there'll be a lot of sort of diplomatic channels and the usual ways of doing things all over the last couple of days and weeks uh, to plan this sort of secret visit. Um, but as you say, today's about also getting the photos and uh, showing that the UK remains resolutely behind uh, Ukraine uh, prior to Rishi coming over here and uh, addressing at the House at PMQs. Yes, I mean, I suppose Keir Starmer will be thrown into disarray, won't he? Because we know how he likes to prepare his questions beforehand. He doesn't <laughs> like any late coming sort of, you know, breaking news. He never manages to get it into the question. So, so what are we expecting to see from him today? Well, I think, uh, I think as you got hit the nail on the head there, right, actually, which is that, uh, you know, by announcing this just sort of an hour or two before PMQs, one would expect Keir Starmer to embark on a more statesman-like direction as questions today. I think the temptation naturally would have been to lead on the reshuffle and maybe ask why, for instance, given the press reports about Dominic Raul's behaviour, he remained in post as a result of that. Uh, but I think there could be a chance we could see Keir Starmer split his six questions into two different topics, perhaps one maybe leading on the Ukraine to start with, and thereafter turning to more the sort of Punch and Judy, Hurley-Burley uh, 
nitty-gritty politics of Westminster. Yeah, absolutely right. Because, of course, um, we've had, I suppose, uh, in the meantime, since the last time they spoke, uh, we've got a new chair of the Conservative Party. Lee Anderson being appointed mm. deputy chair seems to have wound up the lefties no end. Uh, they seem to think that's a terrible idea. But, of course, a lot of Tories think it's a great idea. Um, I was quite surprised, genuinely, that Lee Anderson was picked up by Rishi Sunak because he is a bit of a loose cannon. He is a bit of an unpredictable character. What do you mm. make of that? Well, I think it's an interesting move, and I think it is a bit divisive in some senses. You know, he's got lots of friends in the 2019 intake who are delighted by it, but then there are some, obviously, who elsewhere in the country who say, hang on a sec, this guy was uh, Labour councillor until five years ago. What I would say is this interesting for two points, one of which is he's very, very popular among the grassroots, keep inviting him to constituencies. Uh, he told me the other day he'd done about uh, 12 in a year or so, which is a lot, more than most cabinet ministers. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is that he's a very uh, vocal critic of the small boats crossing the channel. So this is a really interesting way to sort of bind him to the government's side, as we go through the next few weeks with Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, planning to uh, bring through legislation in the House of Commons, it's a useful way of signalling to the Tory right that their concerns are felt and heard. Uh, and if Lee Anderson can stick by the government, why can't they? Yeah, well, quite. I mean, interesting as well what's been going on, I suppose, uh, over the course of the week. We've had more strikes um, which are becoming, seemingly to me anyway, less and less relevant. You know, we were told that we were going to have the biggest strike of all time last week. You know, this week we've had two nurses strikes back to back, um, paramedics out as well, physiotherapists out as well. I mean, whenever I see a picket line now, I just kind of walk past it and shrug my shoulders because, you know, it's so, it's so regular that you see one and there's hardly ever anybody on it. And you just think, well, so what? Well, this was the whole big debate, wasn't it, about how would uh, post-pandemic virtual working and the ability to do Zoom and Skype for business, etc., affect the power of those strikes. Uh, and I think for the most part, certainly the train drivers strike, they haven't actually had the impact they would maybe have liked to. Uh, public sympathy is broadly held up, but there is a bit of a drop-off. Um, and I certainly think that there's a big divide in terms of lowly paid workers, like nurses perhaps, and those earning more than £50,000, uh, like a lot of uh, those on the R&T and uh, as live are. Uh, and so I think that's the kind of crucial divide here. And as you say, the sort of domestic agenda, and the domestic debate has sort of really moved on from the strikes, they're sort of factored in and priced in. Uh, and I've been surprised by how well the Tory party has held together on this. And remember, just last week, there was a debate in the House of Commons and legislation going through for minimum service levels, which means that you'd have to have sort of a certain amount of staff, uh, things like the NHS. Uh, and that was voted through by a majority of 69, a big, big majority. And I think that shows that the Tory resolution on this and the government's resolve has largely held. Uh, and that was not something that everyone was predicting. Yeah, I mean, one story that I suppose won't be necessarily brought up in PMQs, but will have an effect is a story in the front of the Telegraph this morning about how the House of Lords has now blocked um, the government's plan to try and stop people from slow marching. Um, because uh, that apparently is the same as, or has the same effect, if you like, as sitting down in front of traffic. Um, but basically, that's now that that tactic is now going to be allowed. So the government's kind of attempt to to shut that all down has, has gone by the wayside, by the looks of it. Yes, and I think that this is a concern that's felt through a lot of uh, MPs I speak to in the House of Commons. Uh, it's a real nuisance. The question is whether, of course, it can get through. Uh, the House of Lords can develop things up to a year under the Parliament Act. Uh, we can get through before the next election. I think this running uh, the next couple of months is going to be the government and Rishi Sunak deciding which things they really want to prioritise, uh, which are going to win them the election. Uh, of course, there's a long-standing issue, three, four years now, for the Extinction Rebellion, just stop oil going on with yeah. their tactics. Uh, and I think that they constantly innovate, and it's a problem the law has to reconcile with. Yeah, I think.
think that is part of the problem, isn't it? Because whatever they want to do, they seem to be able to do uh, with impunity and nobody seems to be able yeah. to figure out quite how to stop them. Um, one story that did break this morning before all of this happened, and I hadn't, hadn't really had a chance to ask anyone, so I'm going to ask you, but you may not be able to answer the question, is about mm. this Northern Ireland Protocol decision made in the Supreme Court this morning. Um, uh, where there was an attempt, I think, to uh, do away with it, um, and that's been dismissed by the Supreme Court. Nobody seems to be quite sure what it all means. It's all a com- bit complicated over there. Yes, I, I was talking to one uh, member of the government the other day who, who said it was um, like trying to give birth to a sort of large animal, like an elephant or something, because uh, it takes a great deal of pain, there's lots of months of delay, right. uh, and no one's really sure what the result's going to be at the end of it. Right. Um, basically, I think that uh, I think that it's going to be political rather than legal solutions which get through this protocol. Uh, there's been lots of talk and murmurs in government of uh, some solution later this month uh, coming up with a way which it can, the EU and the UK can put some of those issues to bed on checks going into the government. Um, and I think that it's going to be through that kind of negotiation, which whether it can be sold to the DUP is quite the other question, but rather than these legal tactics, because it is the law. Um, and as you said, the Supreme Court challenge was thrown out. So I, rem- I think it will come down to whether the Tories can get something through with the ERG wing of the party. Uh, and pleasing those uh, Ulster Unionists as well. Yeah, absolutely right. James, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. James Heald, uh, diary editor at The Spectator, giving us a bit of a preview of what we can expect from Prime Minister's questions. Uh, we've still got, of course, uh, Vladimir Zelensky inside Downing Street with Rishi Sunak uh, having talks. There will, of course, be um, a statement that will come out of Downing Street. I'm not sure whether it comes out before Prime Minister's questions or after, uh, but also get Vladimir Zelensky addressing uh, the joint houses of Parliament, the House of Lords and the House of Commons in Westminster Hall uh, around about one o'clock, slightly uh, thereafter. Let's talk to uh, some of you, though. How about this from uh, Terry in Birmingham? Morning, Mike. I laughed yesterday um, when Grant Shapps appointed energy security a net zero czar. Where did we put those candles? Uh, well, yeah, you might need to start stocking up because they've now actually got a department for net zero. Rather than going away from it, they seem to be hurtling ever closer towards it. Let's talk to Anne, who's in Hertfordshire. Hello, Anne. Hi. How are you doing? Good morning. Morning. I'm fine, thank you. What can I do for you, Anne? Well, I heard it on uh, speaking on your show. I heard it on the show earlier about the people that were gluing themselves to the road. Yes, and he got an eight-week sentence. Yes, he should have got longer. And also, who's paying for the damage they caused? Yes, it's a very good point. They should because they've got loads of money. They're getting bankrolled by all these rich people like Dale Vince and various rock stars. You know, they should be made to pay pay the damage damage and apologise. Yes, to the general public for the inconvenience caused. And do you remember um, there was a story earlier this week that they said it cost £7.5 million to police all of their demonstrations? Well, we should definitely fine them £7.5 million, shouldn't we? Yeah, because I think they're just dull wasters that are wasting their lives and and, disrupting our lives, and it's disgusting. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. The lady that wanted to collect her son from nursery couldn't get through. Yeah. No, I mean, they've they've ruined so many people's lives. They've made it so difficult for people to get to work. They should absolutely... Do you remember those characters that climbed up the M25 uh, Dartford Crossing and were there for about four nights? It was absolutely ludicrous. Completely no. ridiculous. No. And you're he's quite right. Longer than that, and I'm glad he's lost his job. Yeah, I good. Would, I have carers looking after me because I'm disabled. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't want him looking after me. No, absolutely not. What a, what a, what a great call. Anne in Hertfordshire there says that the carer, the bloke who's been sent off to a prison for eight weeks for contempt of court, by the way, uh, who's moaning and groaning about it, is supposed to be a carer. And what sort of a carer gives up his job? in order to go and sit down uh, and glue themselves to a road or climb up some kind of gantry or basically make a nuisance of himself. And she's absolutely right. It's coming up with a good idea, that. Seven and a half million quid is what the Metropolitan Police said it costs to police the Just Stop Oil protest. Well, how about 
we find them seven and a half million quid. Or maybe, actually, go after the people that bankroll them. Maybe find Dale Vince seven and a half million quid. I like Dale. He's got plenty of money. I'm sure he can afford it. Uh, I think he should stump up the money. If you're listening, Dale, uh, we just need a small check. Seven and a half million should cover it. Uh, we can put it back into the Metropolitan Police and taxpayers will no longer be out of pocket as a result uh, of what these complete and utter maniacs get up to uh, on a regular basis. So uh, that's all we need to do. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.